Welcome everyone to another episode of the Fierce Telecom Podcast. My name is Alejandro Pinedo, your host. And this week we take a look back at a recent event we held just in the month of May, the Broadband Technology Summit virtual event. The event focused on all the strategies around fiber and broadband deployments and was run in cooperation with Deloro Group. We wanted to bring you a special panel here that was moderated by Diana Gewertz, our very own senior editor at Fierce Telecom, and she was joined by Tom White, CTO of Consolidated Communications, Israel Madiedo, of Innovation and Technology Director at Izzy, and John Van Open, VP of Networks at Zipli Fiber. And they went into quite a bit of very interesting detail around next-gen fiber strategies at Deep Dive. So I'm going to hand it over to Diana and her panelists, and then I'll be back to let you know where you can find out a little bit more about the event and where you can tune in. Thank you for joining us to our audience. I am so thrilled to be hosting this panel. Uh, as Kevin mentioned, uh, maybe our panelists can get a, give a little wave. We have uh, Tom White from Consolidated Communications. We also have uh, John Van Oppen, who is uh, from Zipli. Uh, and then we also have Israel Mariedo, who is from Izzy. That's Izzy with an I at the end, in case anyone wants to go ahead and have a look um, to get more information about uh, them. Um, and just a reminder to our audience, we will be taking a few viewer questions. So if anything pops into your head, go ahead and send it over by typing into the Q&A tab. Um, so Jeff really laid out an interesting framework for what we're going to be talking about, because I know some of you guys um, maybe... Uh, have cable assets in your networks. Uh, how are you guys evaluating the different technologies that there are for fiber deployments? So GPON versus XGSPON uh, as you kind of move ahead. Um, maybe, uh, Tom, do you want to start? I know you guys are, are working with fiber right now. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And we do have a, a little bit of uh, uh, traditional uh, coax in our business as well and have done the 3.1 upgrade. Uh, as many have, but uh, it's really not been a, a choice of fiber versus other technologies for us. We we actually began building fiber in 2008 when it was BPON uh, for all greenfield uh, areas and continued, and of course, converted that all to GPON as we've moved forward uh, and, and, and have every opportunity put fiber in the ground, not only to the all the core nodes as we continue to push our networks closer to the customer to support the uh, uh, copper DSL solutions, uh, but any chance we had an opportunity to put fiber in the ground, we did. Uh, and when it came down to timing, we've been deploying XGS ponds since 2020 uh, in our networks. It was a natural evolution from traditional GPON. Uh, and in fact, we announced and uh, we began a massive overbuild, uh, a brownfield overbuild of our market areas with the intent to add another 1.6 million homes past. Uh, we started that in 2021, and that is all XGS PON. We're still deploying some GPON uh, cards, depending on what the customer is choosing. We offer three different speeds. So it comes down to the technologies available. Uh, XGS PON itself has come down in price that it makes sense uh, to deploy, but it's still, as every evolution we see, PON has dropped even further. So for slower speed uh, end customers, we're putting them on traditional GPON at this point, and we expect to see XGS PON ONTs and overall costs go down. And when that happens, we'll just cap all GPON and move forward with XGS PON. So it really comes down to a customer buying 50 meg, 
it, it doesn't, we offer 50, 250 and uh, one gig. We're, we're close to rolling out two gig. We've been able to do two gig for quite some time. Uh, and as you see, a lot of the different com- competition out there is throwing out very large numbers. But uh, when we really look at what the customer's needing and using, uh, you know, one gig oversubscribed coming in at 1.1, both up and down. Uh, is really fitting the bill. So it's never been a question for us. I, you know, we're super proud of the hundred plus years we've, we've worked through copper and really gotten it where, you know, hundred plus meg is, is surprising to me over copper still today. Uh, but offering 10 gig to a customer if, if they want it or need it uh, is there. Plus the other thing that we we've done is, you know, we have all three customer groups and we think about all three customer groups, commercial carrier, and consumer with every network build that we do. And this is the first time we really have one solution to handle the majority of those needs on one network instead of setting a network beside a network for a commercial customer. And so I know we'll talk about uh, uh, NGPON and, and all of that, but it rides right into our path uh, to handle the, the, the customers we believe are going to require that, which is really the commercial and carrier. John, do you have anything to add? I know you guys are, I think if I recall correctly, you're using XGS Pond as well, right? Yeah, so we have a full overlay as well. And, you know, I come from a world before I was at Zipply, I was at a cable provider. And, you know, probably the most striking thing for me that's different between the DOCSIS footprint and the FTP footprint, you know, more than the speed is actually the passive nature of the network. And I can't, as an operator, overstate how valuable that is in terms of maintenance and customer-facing problems. You know, the, it's, it's just unbelievable the difference in the level of work we have to do in the field. And, you know, we, we, we joke about work for us means outages for our customers. So we don't want to do it, and the customers don't want us to do it. It's kind of a double win if you don't do it, right? And and so, you know, from my standpoint, you know, we're, we kind of did the cap and grow strategy as well, and we still have some BPON in our our networks, we have we have BPON, we have old GPON, we have newer GPON, and we have uh, XGS PON. And so we've kind of gone through that evolution as well. And we're not quite, but we're almost 100% overlay with XGS at this point. And, and that's been kind of our go forward strategy uh, to provide that good quality service. And I think I really do think and I watch our public comments a lot from users that, you know, talk on social media and things. And I think people are starting to notice the the network quality being better on these native fiber networks. And, you know, I've gotten more comments in the last six months about things like peering interconnection than we used to. Um, I'd say five or six years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, that was common when there were people on the internet who wouldn't peer, things like that. And then it got better. And now it's starting to get more noticeable again because the last miles gained so good that how you're connected to the destination starts to matter. And um, that's probably the biggest change I've seen. And people are much more, you know, uh, application specific, but they, they don't know why they're asking, but it's, you know, X doesn't work well or Y doesn't work well. And that's been interesting to watch. Okay. Yeah, well uh, Israel, I wanted to see if you had anything to add. Um, I know you're coming at this, uh, I, I believe from Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, just for um, uh, those of you who are not familiar with us, we're easy. We're part of the Televisa group. Uh, I'm sure you have uh, heard about Televisa and we're the largest MSO in Mexico. So, uh, we, we came out of being, you know, a cable company in, in Mexico City and then acquiring uh, cable operations along the country as well as carriers of carriers and stuff like that. And even 
lately we we acquired um, an ISP, which is a Jipon based ISP. So we we start uh, you know uh, working with Jipon maybe some six years ago, but we went seriously into that uh, two and a half years ago, three years ago tops, uh, trying to to make sense of a lot of things in the network. Um, different from the US and Europe or, or Asia, uh, Latin America is, is it's quite a complicated market in terms of uh, offering ARPU uh, market opportunities and the likes and a lot of competition. So um, the, the, the business model in general, it, it came to a point in which we could actually make huge deployments on, on Japan while continuing to have our, let's say, normal cable life. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, uh, was a key element, and uh, it resonates a lot with what uh, John, Tom, and, and Jeff mentioned, it was that we wanted to make it really easy in terms of operations and try to integrate both worlds, let's say, all the traditional uh, DOCSIS world with the GPON part. And, and uh, we took some time in, in the design of what we were going to be doing, but uh, came up with a really neat kind of model in which we, we have a lot of interrupt uh, running uh, among several brands on the GPON part. We have a single layer of orchestration of services for GPON and 3.1, so that makes it a little bit easier on the operations part, and we can go to sleep a little bit earlier sometimes. And, um, and totally focus on terms of how we're going to be the, uh, delivering the services. Uh, I believe that that's that's a key issue. It's, it's a little bit more about you know going into how fast you are. Uh, there are certain markets in which we would love to deploy XGS. Um, as you mentioned, I mean it, it will come up a moment in time in which price level will be uh, such that we we can actually do that. But uh, we're getting ready for that. I mean, in terms of the network, we're ready for that. We we have a combo kind of uh, deployment in our infrastructure. But right now we're focusing on uh, increasing our our footprint in home passes and in in uh, FTTH, and uh, that's something we have been doing for the past two years. So it's it's been it's been quite quite a ride, definitely. Okay, uh, before we kind of delve into fiber a, a little bit more, I, I wanted to ask all of you, since it seems that you're all kind of running mix and match networks uh, in some way or another, uh, what considerations go into running a network that includes both cable and fiber? Maybe, uh, Israel, you could start, since that's uh, one of the things you highlighted. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's complicated whenever you have a city with uh, pretty much like three networks, uh, a very legacy kind of uh, DOCSIS-1, um, an acquired network from another ISP, and then a new deployment of FTTH. So um, definitely we, we had to put a lot of attention in that kind of thing in terms of uh, making it easier for the operation on uh, provisioning on the tools uh, that we're going to be using for tech support and for maintaining the quality of the whole network. But a lot has to do definitely in terms of training and a mindset change uh, within the company. In, in every aspect of the company, not only the tech guys, but everyone, I mean, all the way from the sales uh, representatives to the tech support guys, to engineering, to technology, everyone, they, we all have to be in sync in terms of, hey, we're not going to be doing one flavor anymore. We, we are going to be doing several at the same time. And that's going to be, you know, quite a challenge. We need to train the people. <clears throat> we need to provide the, the right kind of tools. And we need to communicate to the customer 
in, in, a, in an orderly fashion what's going on in their city and the options that they're going to be having. At the end, it's all about the service. Uh, some of the customers, and I believe uh, a small percentage, are really into tech. And they're going to be, you know, uh, taking a close look at what we're doing on the tech side. But most of the customers, they just rely on us to provide the best access possible to, to the Internet. So um, it's, it's a, you know, uh, interesting roadmap in terms of how to combine all of these uh, scenarios. And uh, we, everyone talks about Greenfield and Brownfield and how we're going to be mixing this and that. We came up with a term in which we use that is Greyfield. Because literally, we have a combination of everything. It's not only green and brown. And uh, it's challenging, but definitely uh, fun, and it pays off. John, I wanted to pass it to you next, because I saw you nodding vigorously with a couple things Israel said. Do you, you want to chime in here, and then we can pass it over to Tom? Yeah, so, so actually, the, the comments around preparing technicians and stuff to make sure we, you can do a quality install, you know, we've... It's been one of our biggest battles to make sure they both have the equipment and know how to use it. So, you know, we talked a little bit in the intro about OTDRs and things like that. But, you know, we've actually found uh, more basic tools and training folks to use it. And sort of the religion of fiber was one of the most important things. Things like scoping and cleaning every connector, um, you know, OTDRing anytime there's a problem, measuring all the light levels everywhere and, and not shortcutting those steps because it's quick or easy, you know, we do a lot of copper installs still today in troubleshooting. So the folks uh, on the DSL side and the fiber side are mixed uh, teams. And so that's, that's an important detail for us is to, to switch that mindset from just make it work to make it clean. So we don't have to visit it again. Right. Because those impairments, you know, fiber is really great, but it's a lot more sensitive to the quality of the install than most of the other mediums we've used over the years. And, you know, I think we've made great strides in that, but we're looking at some of the stuff internally, you know, about how to do stats and things like that. So we can rank technicians and uh, rank various areas to compete with each other on the cleanest uh, installs, you know, monitoring CRC errors, monitoring light levels so that we can track some of that stuff. And we're just at the infants, uh, you know, the very first stages of collecting that data in a way we can use it. But I think um, that's going to be a major focus for us as part of, uh, driving a really good quality service implementation and, you know, and also, you know, self-servingly, it drives down the truck rolls, right? <laughs> but customers don't want to see us anyway. If, if we think customers want us to come visit them, we're wrong. And we're, th we're thinking way too highly of ourselves. They really, they want to think of us like the cloud. <laughs> Just want Green. you to, to work when we need it to work. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tom, do you have anything to add on uh, running a network that includes mixed assets? Yeah, and I, I love the gray uh, comment, the, the gray field uh, approach. Um, we we have been doing this for years, though, where we, we do draw a line in the sand and cap and stop and continue with the new technology. And uh, we actually did that with our largest cable deployment and uh, of the market area, 27 percent of its fiber to the home. And so we stopped even with the coax bill because we saw the advantages of fiber and the fiber opportunities there. So, uh, you know, th the other thing I'll say that, that is really driving us all towards fiber is, you know, I mentioned it earlier that, you know, we spent years pushing our office further and closer to our customers or shortening copper loop lengths so we could get the bandwidth there. And John said it right, hit the nail on the head where 
all of that is active equipment, more equipment, power consumption, and everything. It, it just drives so much more of a support cost. And we're actually moving backwards with fiber. So we put a lot of fiber out to support those areas, which is which are our F1 heavy fibers. Uh, now we're putting a passive passive FDH out there, and we're put we're going back to the main central offices. So it, it, as John said, fewer active. Uh, parts in the network, but also thinking of the future and total cost of supporting customers, eventually eliminating, sh- you know, shutting down uh, and totally taking those nodes we spent so many years building out and eliminating them from our network, which again, reduce our cost. Uh, and, you know, the new optics that fiber is driving, you know, the the budget you get to the end customer has just opened a whole different door for us. And just, we, we don't see coax as that same opportunity because of the nodal approach in, in active devices. So. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a minute here and work in some audience questions because they actually play into some of the questions that I had prepared anyway. So brace yourselves. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a long explanation, but uh, I, I'm so excited to hear your responses to this. So uh, we had a question from Benjamin who asked, um, what is really the broadband demand environment right now and in the future? Are customers really going to need the speed capacity enabled by a fiber network or would DOCSIS 4.0 be sufficient for the majority of users? And that kind of plays into a question that um, I had written down about um, operators talking about XGS PON as being future-proof um, and uh, and us already seeing, you know, offers being rolled out for half that capacity, you know, the five gig offers that we're seeing from from everyone coming out now. So uh, my question was, how quickly are users jumping on those speeds? Um, and what applications, uh, you know, do you have any insight into when applications that actually require those will come to market? Um, maybe, John, do you want to start with this one? Yes. So I was going to, this always brings up probably my favorite quote and it's, you know, old Bill Gates quote about 640K of memory and how we'll never need more than that. Um, you know, as the network operators, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think demand isn't going to go up into the right. And we probably don't know exactly what it's for. And But right now, you know, I kind of see two use cases. I see the, um, I want to get an amazing speed test and impress my friends category, which is a non-trivial category. Like, I, I can't, it's... It's definitely not zero. It's not twenty percent, but it's it's some non-trivial amount. But then there's this this other group that I think is is more important. It's the I want to have so much bandwidth I don't have to worry about it. Things just go fast, and this goes as we've gone more to the cloud, um, more of that stuff. You know, people want to upload documents and they just want it to go. They don't want to sit there with the wheel spinning with the progress meter going slowly. They want, you know, they view that as wasted time. They want it to behave more like what they would expect at their corporate office when they're remote. And to, to me, that's the use case that's really going to drive this. And we saw it with the pandemic really well because we saw people sitting at home, working from home while their kids were doing school from home and whatever else. And they wanted a connection that was fast enough to just support all of that without congestion and just not worry about it. And to me, these packages are a peace of mind. Yes. Could you get by with less bandwidth? Probably. But could you get by with less bandwidth and it never being a bottleneck? Probably not. And so that, that that's really the where it comes down. And I think folks get a really, um, you know, get really wrapped around the axle of what the actual usage is. You don't care about the actual usage on the circuit. You care about the peak usage. And you care about the peak usage in like couple second intervals because 
while you're at peak, the user is sitting there waiting. Everybody on this call has downloaded a file or something and sat there while it downloaded. You know, not having to sit there is worth something to you. The question is how much, and as, as that becomes just incrementally more, and not you know not a ton more that enables new applications because higher percentage of the users can download those big files, you know the the early thing around this that we used to see and I'm, we still see it is Xbox releases and other consoles that download their games right that the new big games can be tens of gigabytes and everybody will download them the first night so they can play as quickly as possible with their friends that's not a business use case but it's a great demonstration where you can drive huge peaks in broadband usage. I mean, if we're talking in our network, it's double digit percentage increases for that night, right? It's very noticeable. And and we want to see that, you know, go fast so people can get that instant gratification. We don't want to be the bottleneck as providers. You know, the last thing we want our customers to think of is, oh my goodness, my provider is causing this application not to work. We want them to just think about the application and be like, oh, it was enabled by us to make it work fast. It's changing that dynamic from a complaint to a not, it's not an endorsement, but a lack of complaint. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the end, people don't want to think about it. It's like the power company. They don't think about it when it's not working. Right. Tom, anything to add there? Oh, man, he, he hit so many one right on the top. I've had my kids very upset when it says uh, the new game will be downloaded in 12 hours and uh, they just want to play it right then and there. But uh, now, you know, this is such a complex question because it's, it's, it's exactly around what do customers really need uh, and, and uh, what are the bragging rights? What's the competition offering to say, we've got five gig, you know, uh, I think the pandemic really did drive, you know, such a different view of how people, utilize their broadband, especially the upload side of it, where people are now uploading very, very large files. And that's that's where we saw the Achilles heel with the with the uh, cable companies is frustration there. But to me, it comes down to we're capable of providing so much. Uh, it really comes down to what do the customers want? What do they feel they need? Uh, so they don't get frustrated. But it also comes right back down to price. What are they willing to pay? And uh, you know, the market can, from a competitive standpoint, can run itself right down to, you know, nothing where you're offering a 10 gig service for, you know, $50 a month. And that's the insanity you see, uh, you know, in so many different parts of our industry, uh, you know, on the commercial side and those type of things. But it really comes down to what's the customer willing to pay to not have that frustration. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we all do the same thing. We know the utilization our customers are having the peak sides of it uh, and everything else. And, uh, um, you know, the average customer, I don't know the next apps. I wish I was at, I'd be, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys. I'd be a lot richer and, and laying on a beach somewhere. But uh, uh, if I knew the next super app that was going to come, but uh, um, uh, for now, uh, what we're putting out there has a hell of a long uh, road to it uh, in lifespan. Okay. Israel, is the demand environment any different uh, in Mexico? Yeah, um, it changes a little bit. I mean, I, I totally concur with, with uh, John and Tom and their certain bragging rights. And uh, I'm, I love it when you mentioned, John, that about, uh, you know, the speed test is not an easy thing and it's not trivial. And uh, the number one application for anyone that has any kind of package beyond the 100 meg is, uh, you know, speed test because you want to know that you actually are getting what you pay for. 
And in, in not only in Mexico, in Latin America in general, that's a very sensitive kind of thing, I mean, pricing. And, um, and Tom, you mentioned that, what, what is a customer willing to pay for? Or what is not only willing, but uh, capable of paying for? Uh, talking about pandemics, for example, we, in not only Mexico, also in several other countries, we, we had to come up with emergency kind of packages to support people that uh, needed to have a basic connection, uh, no gaming, no streaming, but only basic connection for school and work, and, and keep that up running for pretty much almost for free. I mean, it was a, a tiny kind of price uh, for several months just, uh, you know, to, to support the communities in here. So. Um, in our markets in general, for example, talking about beyond the one gig is not there yet. I mean, we are offering one gig uh, here in Mexico and several other of my colleagues in the region are doing as well. But uh, the percentage of people actually getting those uh, packages is, is really low. We're promoting everyone who we're, we're in, you know, kind of motivating the customer to go beyond the 50 meg or, or even the 20 meg and, and, and pushing that. So it's different environment. That being said, I mean, at the end, we, we want to take care of investments today. I mean, whatever we are putting down and, and laying on the, on, on the streets and, and, and getting to our central offices and the likes has to be, you know, um, for a long time. And uh, uh, definitely whatever makes sense in terms of the business case is gonna be ruling these kind of deployments. For the general purpose, I mean, there are a lot of technologies, whether it's DOCSIS, whether it's, it's fiber, we're, we're gonna be covering that basic thing but yeah, we, we don't know about what's going to be the next killer kind of thing. There are a lot of talking about, you know, the metaverse and whatever the flavor you want on that um, or the 20 definitions that are coming out of that. Uh, there are certain works on, you know, <clears throat> something like light fields and, and stuff like that, which is fantastic. But it's a whole ecosystem. It's not only the connection. It has to do with devices at home, with, with your primary function, with what you're going to be doing with that. So it's... It's interesting. It's a really complex kind of thing trying to predict the future, and and definitely I would be with Tom, you know, in some place in, around the world, spending money and not in the conference uh, if we knew that for sure. But uh, I would say that the key thing is we want to be ready, and uh, yeah, we don't we don't want to go back again several times into a city, rebuild it, and and upgrading and stuff like that. If we can have a path to, uh, you know. Uh, a clear uh, upgrading of the networks and, and doing that once, that would be fantastic. Awesome. Speaking of predicting the future, I do have a future prediction question. I hope you guys are ready. Um, there's been some debate about whether the next step forward for Pawn beyond uh, XGS is going to be 25G, is it going to be 50G? Uh, I've even been hearing rumblings about 100G being out there lurking in the shadows. Uh, what do you guys think is going to be coming next? Maybe, Tom, you could lead this one off. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people that disagree with me. I believe it's absolutely 50 uh, is the next step. Uh, working with diff you know all the different vendors. Uh, 25G was requested by another large provider and uh, the 50 gig, 50 gig solution, it's basically baked in and ready to go. It's, there's just no demand for it. And so the pricing uh, for it is just ridiculous at this point. Uh, I do think it'll be 50. I don't see us stopping on the interim 25G at all. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. And as, I think as the market slowly moves, I see our commercial and our carrier uh, wireless backhaul uh, customers driving 
us to, to eventually go to that point. Um, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a skepticism, skeptic, skeptic, uh, I can't say the word skepticism is in my brain, but uh, I, I don't see it happening for quite some time. The awesome thing for us though, is the design is very, very uh, easy, I should say, to put an ad uh, and, and do it when we need to. But I, I absolutely believe it's 50 and not uh, 25. John, I see you nodding. You're up next. <laughs> yeah, so so I think, you know, my take is from a technology standpoint, 25 is the easiest, right? Because the chipsets and stuff like that that's currently available in bulk because of the cloud data centers. But, you know, I kind of second Tom's point to what's the point, right? And, and 10, you know, okay, a couple of my pawns I might have to split, but at least I don't introduce another technology. You know, it's not going to be a huge um, gainer for us. I, I think you're likely to see it, you know, wait a few years and then bump more. You know, that's really the, the benefit of the fiber infrastructure. The passive fiber infrastructure allows you to do that upgrade relatively cost-effectively once the cards are at the point where it's the right cost. And, you know, the other thing the fiber allows you to do is, is really simple. It's it's that if somebody wants more than can be supported by the, the 10 gig pond, you can just do Ethernet over a dedicated strand in most cases, yeah. right? Because you do have that fiber network. And, you know, Ethernet today, you do a strand or two and you can get 400 gig on it, no problem, right? So you can handle your outliers in a cost-effective way without increasing your base per port cost. And and to me, that's the obvious choice, right? You know, even even if we had a thousand customers that wanted 10 gig to their house, it would probably be cheaper to just put them on Metro E than it would be to upgrade the rest of the footprint to 25 gig pawn, right? And so you kind of have this push and pull, but that's that's really the benefit of that passive network coming to the forefront more than anything. It's not a, the technology here that's valuable is that we're installing fiber with sufficient count that can be used for you know anything we want to in the future. and. Um, it kind of, to the earlier point on that front, you know, we're, the fiber investment is a long-term investment. The electronics are not. The electronics are for the next five years, right? Seven years, maybe, right? It's that kind of interval. The fiber, though, has to go out years and years and years. And this is a proven methodology. I mean, we've got backbone spans that were installed in the early 80s that have, you know, multi-terabit DWDM systems on them. You know, and the only thing we've changed was to re-splice the fibers with modern, modern splicing techniques. It wasn't to swap the fiber. And that's that's a good demonstration of how this investment carries on. Um, and I, I think, you know, folks forget that. You know, we get this, people talk about legacy networks, but there's actually a lot of legacy fiber out there being used to feed the new fiber. And we do it all the time. You know, small town might have a fiber backhaul that goes 30 miles out of the town. And, you know, we'll use that to bring 100 gig in um, to feed the OLT on a regular basis. Is there anything you wanted to add about NGPON2? Uh, I know you, I think you had mentioned it earlier. Uh, well, in general, I mean, uh, I'm a technocrat, so I love technology per se, but we need to think about business cases and how the markets are going to be responding. So, um, you know, like like the uses cases that, that uh, Tom and John mentioned, I mean, at the end, there are a lot of backhole and front hole connections and uh, connection to data centers and stuff like that. So it's going to be a demand of those kind of services that actually will be driving, in our case, uh, the investments in the future. I totally concurred about uh, the, having already the fiber laid down and all, let's say, the logic behind in terms of how we're going to be managing 
uh, provisioning the services and actually uh, abstracting network functions, it's going to be make it easy for us in terms of whatever changes coming to the access electronics and all the optics in, in the future to adapt ourselves. But we see that more like an, let's see what happens in our markets and what is the need that will come. And uh, if the business case is, is, is the right one, and uh, if there is critical mass actually for, for uh, you know, all these kind of uh, devices and, and, and ONTs and ONUs and the likes, then we will follow uh, a determined path or a combination of them. I mean, at the end, we, we need to keep it flexible, but we definitely need to make a, a really, really good uh, business case for that. A lot of functions coming in. I mean, all the all the computing edge and and uh, all the edge functions in general are going to be demanding, and um, partnerships among you know fixed operators and and the mobile ones is going to be very interesting. But not only them, but hyperscalers are going to be needing certain specific things, and partnerships going to be a key thing. And uh, based on that, I mean, residential is going to be a little bit more traditional, if you will, and. Uh, but the, 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 the need for certain other things will definitely receive, it will come from different markets. Okay. I have another combo question here with uh, kind of integrating an audience member question with one of uh, the ones I had planned. Uh, this person asked, how important is network energy usage for fixed networks? Uh, what is the most energy hungry part of the fixed network? Um, and then the question I had planned uh, is kind of around the long-term vision of uh, pond networks um, and how that interplays with expected uh, climate change. Um, I think, Tom, maybe I had spoken with you or a member of your team about this uh, fairly recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, what benefits does fiber bring to the table versus cable or fixed wireless when it comes to not only climate change, but also energy usage? Uh, Tom, maybe you could start. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're we're spread out over 22 states, coast to coast, north to south, and uh, uh, unfortunately have had the properties in our southern and northeast uh, markets uh, influenced by hurricanes, uh, <laughs> straight line winds and so forth. And uh, you know, the, the other huge advantage of fiber uh, over copper is uh, copper's electrical. And uh, when it's wet, it doesn't perform well. And when pedestals are underwater, they, they, they create a lot of trouble for our customers. Uh, if, if someone doesn't close the terminal up appropriately and water gets on it, uh, you have issues. So, you know, as we've been, as we've been deploying the fiber side of it, uh, our trouble volumes drop significantly, in, in especially in inclement weather. Uh, the other thing we're doing uh, in in our aerial markets, primarily in the Northeast, is as we're placing fiber, we do have a plan in place that uh, we will convert the final customers at a certain level over to fiber uh, and uh, pull the copper out uh, and actually pull it off of the poles, reduce the weight. And when you're in an area with a lot of ice storms uh, and heavy snowstorms, you know, less weight on the pole lines is, is significant uh, because, uh, you know, a tree limb can be held up where it couldn't before. Uh, so service impacts uh, will be lower. So, you know, as we think about that, it also, as I mentioned before, by eliminating more of the nodes we have out there that we've built over the years, we're, we're taking that, that you know, uh, carbon footprint away 
uh, reducing all that electrical uh, drain and, and cost. And, you know, especially small huts or small buildings, the HVAC costs. So, you know, we're thinking very actively about that as well to get back to one location, eliminate those costs and those impacts. Uh, and then again, get rid of the electrical impacts for our customers on copper. Okay. Uh, John, do you want to chime in real quickly um, here and maybe call out specifically what is the most energy hungry part of a, a fiber network? So, I mean, I think the, the the answer is probably not the one you'd expect. It's probably the CPE, but that's not the part the telecom sees, right? You know, the um, it, you know in our network, the most energy intensive stuff is actually all the legacy stuff, and I'm sure this applies to the other two participants as well. And you know, I think the energy consumption has to be kind of broken into two categories, right? The actual usage, right? And then the fact that an outage of that electricity drives an outage in the service. And so we spend a lot of energy in the telecommunications energy industry trying to provide uh, high availability electricity to power our stuff. And that is not very efficient, right? You know, we have backup generators, we have batteries, we have lots of HVAC. And so every watt a piece of equipment uses, we're probably you know, on average using two watts from the utility because, you know, people talk about PUE and data centers, but, you know, there are very few telecommunications facilities that are dense enough to get a good PUE. They're just not there. There's a lot of stuff spread out over a lot of space with a lot of air handlers. And they're, they're not what you would consider a modern data center because the equipment, you know, you have rows of patch panels and you have a few lit devices and, that just makes it so that there's not, uh, you know, a really optimal way to cool it, and it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. And unlike the cloud or something like that, we can't shift users away from a failure. You know, your connection at your house is plugged into the site that you're physically wired to. If that site goes down, you are going down. So we have to put a lot of a lot of resiliency into that. And you know, kind of to that end, we also think that climate change both makes the utilities less reliable and makes things come down on our cables more and is also likely to drive a public policy response that increases power rates. So my my long-winded answer there is, is our, our answer to this is try to turn off as much legacy stuff as possible, as fast as possible, because it both drives outages because it's more dependent on electricity anywhere. You know, we want to only be dependent on one hub site and the customer premise, not a bunch of sites in the middle. And, uh, you know, we're trying to get to that, turning off phone switches, turning off... Um, you know, various, you know, DSL devices, other aggregators as we deploy fiber. And, you know, we expect pretty significant savings from that over time. And, you know, it doesn't just save us money. It, those those outside plant elements that require more electricity are older and break more often. So it's, it's a win for us and a win for the customers at the same time. Are you able to quantify the savings, John, that you just mentioned? Um, we haven't really publicly disclosed okay. the dollar figures, but it, it's big. It's double digits off the total bills. Israel, how does the whole energy efficiency and climate change thing factor into your considerations around fiber? Uh, I, I believe I'm, I'm really in sync with uh, Tom and John. I mean, at the end, we, we need to be conscious about what we're do, uh, doing in terms of the, the network. Um, all the old stuff is actually the one consuming the most of the power, definitely. And um, we have performed some uh, internal analysis in terms of uh, total cost of ownership to five years, comparing 
old networks with the new ones. And that's uh, part of our support whenever we come to the board and ask for any kind of money for investment. Uh, we need to, to consider not only, you know, the, the capital, but where are we going to be saving in terms of maintenance and, and uh, uh, electricity bills and stuff like that. And <clears throat> removing all stuff from the streets is, is, is a huge part for us, definitely. Um, just as Tom mentioned, I mean, we're, we're also trying to uh, migrate customers from old networks to the newer and try to take them out um, from the streets, both from uh, the poles and, and, you know, switching off whatever we can in certain areas. It's, it, uh, it, uh, it's, it's been uh, quite a challenge to do that sometimes due to convincing customers actually to move to something uh, newer, but uh, uh, it's, it's paying off. I mean, we, we see... Um, we see an increase of uh, customers wanting to do that. And the last thing is we are already, um, certain elements of the network were deploying already in a virtualized fashion. So for example, BNGs, uh, we already have some BNGs and routers uh, running on, on a virtualized uh, part. So we're taking away all the you know huge kind of uh, uh, shelves and, and, and power consuming kind of um, machines that are in the hub and trying to make them a little bit more friendly in terms of having, you know, some servers uh, running in there. It, it's it's coming to that point. I mean, we're, it's not there yet for the whole network, but at least we're seeing some benefits on doing that. Of course, we still have all the, all the, all the huge infrastructure, whenever it makes sense and whatever it makes sense. But um, moving away in certain areas, which are small towns or remote towns, trying to provide that on a virtualized function, that, that's, that's also paying off. Okay. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left here, but I would be remiss if I did not ask about supply chain challenges, uh, which is a uh, audience member question that came in. Uh, I know it was not on my question list, but I realize now I should have put it on there. <laughs> so uh, Israel, how about we start with you this time? Um, how are you guys uh, working through these supply chain shortages? Where do things stand? Uh, do you think this is going to impact rollouts at all? Uh, absolutely, and I believe it's it's a common answer for everyone. We're all suffering from that. We're trying to get prepared as much as possible uh, with with the right amount of planning ahead, so that we can actually uh, order equipment and CPEs in an, in you know uh, and, and and get covered in that. But we're definitely being impacted uh, right now. Fortunately enough, we we already have let's say infrastructure uh, as needed to provide the services, and we continue to do that. We haven't come to any kind of a pause or stop or anything like that. It's just a struggle of thinking what we're going to be doing in the coming future. And also certain components are no longer going to be available for certain things. So we need to re-engineer certain parts. Uh, we need to homologate uh, in, a, in a very quick fashion certain uh, devices, CPs and the likes and trying to get into the, them into the network as, as soon as possible. But I believe everyone is, is definitely uh, very conscious about that nowadays. It certainly seems so. I saw Tom nodding. Tom, what, uh, you were especially nodding to his point about uh, certain components becoming unavailable. Do you want to maybe expand on that and then kind of answer the broader question? Yeah, a absolutely. Um, it, it, it is. It is created. It's. It's created a positive challenge to break our molds of how we've always done business. So drive flexibility. Uh, uh, I'll use pots ports uh, on cards. You know, we, we standardly put some, you know, a piece of equipment out that has a pots port. Well, they're extremely hard to get. 
do we really need a POTS port when we're really driving customers to VoIP? And, you know, just a, a component that used to cost 20 cents is now $18. And you just can't put that in there. Uh, but, but the biggest thing for us is, you know, people get very comfortable and change is different. Uh, people love a certain type of pedestal. Well, you can't get it. So we're going to use this type of pedestal, an aerial enclosure. We like this aerial enclosure. You can't get it, you know, from plastics, polymer uh, shortages. Uh, it's not just the electronics in the world out there that, that are the challenge. And so we've spent a lot of time working with our vendors, you know, long-term relationships, but, but it also changing a little bit of paradigm within my company of, being much more open and and more revealing of forecast and what we need and putting commitments out there to the vendors. And I think everyone here and everyone who's dealing with it would agree that a, a purchase order out trumps a forecast every day, all day. And when you're talking 12 month lead times and, and so forth, you've got to step be able to step up with your providers and give them surety. Uh, and, and I believe that's one of the things we've done and, and, and it's really worked well for us because they know they can do the slow boat instead of air freight, drives their costs down. They know they have a PO uh, and they know they're going to sell that that uh, equipment. Tom, I want to follow up before I hand it off to John for the final word. I heard you say 12 month lead times. Is that where things stand right now for most vendors? It depends on what it is. But yes, if it's electronics world, uh, most electronics are anywhere nine to 12 months and it's just their sourcing of the, of the components. And I, I've, I've, you know, it's a common term that I never heard before, but uh, when you have your primary vendors that are getting D commits from their vendors, which are the chipsets and the, you know, it's a regular uh, occurrence where they think something's coming in and they just got decommitted on all these chips and they're another three or four months out. So it is, it depends on what it is, but yeah, it's the electronics are really dragging quite a bit out there for us. John, I'm going to hand it to you for the final word on supply chain. Maybe you can chime in on uh, where things stand for supply of the actual fiber itself. Yeah. So I was going to say the fibers sim experiencing similar problems, you know, being a large purchaser in our case has helped us a lot. You know, one of the things that has helped us that I honestly wasn't expecting is as a phone company, we own a lot of real estate and a lot of yards and stuff behind buildings and things. And man, we are filling them up with parts because like so if we can get stuff, we'll get it and try to keep, you know, 12 months supply of it and then keep ordering on the back end. I mean, it's just, it's terrible, but you know, we've managed to get through it for the most part, but you know, almost entirely due to early commits and early POs being issued, you know, to echo what Tom's saying, you know, vendors are non-committal until they you know have a commitment for money and then even even then they're less committed than they used to be you know we've had people be like yeah we can get that 60 days and then you send them a po and you know a week later they're like oh by the way we went nine months when we said 60 days right. And right. so you have to be prepared for that and that that's the new world we live in and part of it's shipping but a huge part of it's the components including the actual fiber and Things like cabinets for um, splitter cabinets and stuff on the side of the road. Those are also a, a big bottleneck. Um, you know, even the you know drop cables and quick connect uh, things you see on the strand. Those are those are another big bottle, bottleneck. And everybody's building, so not only is the supply chain going to heck, we're also asking more of it than we've ever asked as you know as North America. And that's uh, even before the the forty odd billion that's coming down the pipeline uh, in the next couple of years. So it's it's going to 
going to get interesting. Um, I have a ton more questions for all three of you, but we are out of time. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you, all three of you, for joining us. And I will hand it off uh, for the end of this session. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that panel. We certainly found it fascinating on the day. And the good news is you can tune into that session and, of course, the rest of the show because the event is available on demand for the next six months until November of this year. All you have to do is go to the Fierce Telecom's page, fiercetelecom.com, and then in the events page, you'll see our on-demand events where you can register and listen in. So make sure you visit. And for those of you, and I'm sure it's all of you actually, that enjoyed listening to Diana lead that panel, she'll be back next week with an exclusive interview with a fiber broadband deployment player. Until then, thanks for listening in, and I hope to see you again next week. Take care.